it started off with me trying to understand what the heck this emotion was that so many of us feel when we hear sad music and it doesn't really make us feel sad. It makes us feel connected to humanity, to something uplifting and soaring and connecting. And I discovered that there's this bittersweet tradition that has existed across time, across the centuries, across the world that our writers and philosophers and religions have been trying to teach us about for centuries because it's the pathway to creativity and connection and transcendence. And we live in such a relentlessly optimistic and upbeat culture that we don't right. pay enough attention to that dimension of human experience. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Andrew Darvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about, how they got their start, how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. we're talking to Susan Kane, author of the best-selling books, Quiet, The Power of Introverts, as well as her latest work, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. Huh, that can't be right. I'm pretty sure Susan didn't write her books working at P&G. <laughs> hey, Roman, how's it going? Oh, hey, it's Dorian Positano, who hosts P&G's internal podcast, More Than Soap, which is available to all P&G employees worldwide. Great to have you on Learnings from Leaders, Dorian. So, Tell me more about this podcast. Yeah, PNG is much more than just a soap company. And the possibilities of what we can do to build our business and impact the world are endless. But we walk around with blinders on and we don't even know we're wearing them most of the time. And so on the podcast, what we do is we sit down with guests and we rip those blinders off to learn about what they would see if they were in our shoes. And then after every conversation, we also sit down with a P&G leader to unpack the insights and apply them to our world at P&G. Yeah, I've heard a few of your episodes and the guest list is quite impressive. So let's actually talk about today's episode, your conversation with best-selling author Susan Cain. Here's a quick bio. Susan Cain is the author of the bestseller Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, which has been on the New York Times bestseller list for multiple years and was named the number one best book of the year by Fast Company, which also named Cain one of its most creative people in business. Susan's latest book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole, is also a number one New York Times bestseller and explores the power of the bittersweet personality, revealing a misunderstood side of mental health and creativity while offering a roadmap to facing grief in order to live life to its fullest. So I think it just goes without saying that this was a really powerful conversation that we're excited to share with our PNG alumni audience. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention the More Than So podcast, available exclusively to all of the PNG employees who we know are listening to our PNG alumni podcast. Those of you who have not yet subscribed to More Than Soap, you got to check it out because you'll have exclusive access to not just the amazing conversations that Dorian and his team put together, but you'll also get access to post-interview conversations with P&G executive leaders where they talk about their unique take on each guest's conversation with Dorian. That's right, Raman. Any P&G employee around the world can just go to getmorethansoap.com to hear any of our exclusive content, which you can listen to right on your favorite podcasting app. And 
You know, it's worth mentioning that for PNG employees every other week, we also sit down with Shane Meeker, our PNG historian, to talk about some of PNG's most fascinating stories. And they really are fascinating. That is so awesome. I'm super jealous of all our friends still at PNG. And you get to hear regular episodes like this all the time. So we're looking forward to featuring lots of future conversations from the More Than Soap show on this PNG Alumni podcast. And also, if you haven't yet heard, the next PNG Alumni Global Conference is almost here, November 2nd through 5th in Washington, D.C. You'll get to hear from many former PNG CEOs, numerous C-suite alumni leaders, and emerging trendsetters. And you'll also have exclusive access to D.C. area events with your fellow alums at the PNG Alumni Global Conference, November 2nd through 5th, 2023 in Washington, D.C. Lots more to come, so stay tuned by subscribing to the PNG Alumni Newsletter at pgalums.com. So without further ado, let's jump straight into the More Than Soap conversation with best-selling author Susan Kane. Yes, crap really works. More doctors advise ivory for the skin than any other soap. Susan Kane, welcome to the More Than So podcast. Dorian, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And I know in fairly recent history, you've partnered with PNG in, in many different ways. So it's great to have you back. Yeah, absolutely. I did a whole bunch of work with PNG some years ago in my first book, Quiet, which was about the power of introverts in an extroverted culture. When that book came out, there were people at PNG who are real um, passionate champions of that idea and of the fact of, I guess, how many introverts you guys have working yes. at the company. Myself included. Actually. Well, there you go. Yeah. And not surprising, by the way, that you're an introvert in this very public facing role, because <laughs> right. I see that a lot. Yes. Well, I want to talk to you about that. And I think we'll get into more of your book, Quiet, as well as your new book called Bittersweet. And typically, Susan, I sort of do an intro with a bit of a synopsis on the guest. But you are an amazing storyteller. So I wanted to try something a little bit different with you. I want to have you tell the story of Susan Kane and kind of how you ended up where you are today. And you can start anywhere you want. Oh, gosh. <laughs> no, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I wanted to be a writer since I was four years old. And if not a writer, then I probably, my other career should have been as a psychologist because mm. I'm just completely fascinated by and passionate about just the human psyche and what it all means and how best to live in the world. So those were my big passions, mm. but I became a corporate lawyer, a Wall Street lawyer. Okay. Um, and I, I did that for almost 10 years and that was out of some desire to be practical and make a living and all those things. But eventually, when I was in my early 30s, I quit all that and switched to writing. Mm. And my first book was, as we were just talking about, it was Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, which was a book that I thought at the time, like when I first started working on it, I thought it was going to be this idiosyncratic little marginal project mm. that I cared about and a few other people would care about, but didn't foresee that it was going to become this worldwide thing, yeah. which has sort of never stopped popping. It came out in 2012, and it still was translated into over 40 languages and on the bestseller list for a crazy number of years, like eight years or something. Hmm. I didn't realize when I first started working on it, but that was a book that was speaking to really a good half of the population who was feeling that 
they didn't have permission to be their true selves and to spend their time the way they wanted to. And most of all, I think to access the powers that came most naturally to them. Right. So I've been working on work with organizations and schools who are interested in harnessing the talents of the quieter half of their employee and, and student population since then. Yeah. But I'm a writer at heart. And my latest book is called Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. And that too has been a kind of passion project of wanting to understand. I mean, it, it started off with me trying to understand what the heck this emotion was that so many of us feel when we hear sad music. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really make us feel sad. It makes us feel connected to humanity to something uplifting and soaring and connecting mm. and i discovered that there's this bittersweet tradition that has existed across time across the centuries across the world that our writers and philosophers and religions have been trying to teach us about for centuries because it's the pathway to creativity and connection and transcendence and we, we live in such a kind of relentlessly optimistic and upbeat culture that we don't right. pay enough attention to that dimension of human experience. Let's start with quiet and your TED talk about introversion, since, as you mentioned, that's really what put you on the map, I would say, initially and led to you working with P&G. And I'm sorry to ask this question for, you know, the billionth time for you, but I guess it comes with the territory. Why don't we start with, you know, what is an introvert and what's the biggest thing that we tend to get wrong about introverts? Well, I'll use the kind of, it's almost like a pop psychology definition, but it's, yeah. it's a good one, I think. And it's a question of where do you get your energy? You know, do you feel most energized when you're in a quieter setting with fewer people, fewer kind of stimulants coming at you? Or do you feel most energized when when there's lots of stimulation coming at you? Right. Lots of people, lots of hubbub and so on. The thing that we get most wrong about that is we assume that the person who prefers the fewer stimulants, the quieter situation, you know, the, the glass of wine with the close friend as opposed to the big party full of strangers, we assume somehow that that person is somehow misanthropic or not a good leader, you know, all, all these different things. When in fact, there's no correlation between how warm and other oriented a person is and how introverted or extroverted they are. It's just that introverts and extroverts express their social selves very differently. Right. But one type of person isn't more, more or less social than the other type. Well, and you sort of suggest in the book, Quiet, that introverted children are highly reactive or, you know, sensitive to their environment and can have an aversion to novelty, which sort of causes introverted children to want to spend time inside the familiar environment of their own heads. So would it be fair to say that introverts in general, not just children, are highly sensitive to uncertainty and therefore kind of instinctively shy away from it? Or, or am I not interpreting that properly? No, that is a good interpretation. The one thing that's a little bit tricky is that there are a bunch of different pathways to what makes somebody an introvert. That profile of the children that you were just talking about describes about 15 to 20% of the population who literally are born with a temperament that makes 
them makes us, I say Ash because I'm one of those people, mm. more sensitive to novelty in the way that you were just describing. Right. And that is a preference that kind of continues throughout a lifetime. Although, of course, you know, all kinds of skills get layered on and experiences get layered on top of that. So a child who might be really averse to new environments can learn to become comfortable with it over time, right. even if there's still some of that inborn temperament that's kind of always with them. But, you know, there's other roots to introversion as well. Another aspect of what makes somebody an introvert, all human beings have, as we know, dopamine pathways in our brain, which is basically the pathways that have to do with our reward networks. So when there's the prospect of something rewarding happening to us, you know, whether it's like a fun outing with a friend or a really interesting new project at work or whatever it is. It's our dopamine-based reward pathways that become activated at that prospect. But what we know is that introverts' reward networks, well, let me say it the other way, that extroverts' reward networks are kind of more easily activated than those of introverts. Mm. And this is why you see this phenomenon of extroverts who will get kind of like really easily hyped up at the prospect of, you know, like a, a big new project, let's say. Right. And then you see introverts who are like, oh, you know, that sounds really interesting, but hmm, have we thought about this aspect? Have we thought about that aspect? Because the reward networks are not, they're activated and we all know what that excited feeling feels like, whether we're, we're introverts or extroverts. But for introverts, because that activation is not quite as intense, you're looking at the prospect of something new and exciting from a, from a more tempered point of view. So that's something that doesn't necessarily correlate with, you know, that profile of the child who is averse to new experiences. It's in the interest of introverts as well as extroverts because there are things extroverts need to balance out as well. It's in the interest of all of us to gain skills and abilities that don't come naturally to us right? so that we can do the work that we love in the world and have the love relationships that we want. You know, our love relationships too usually require stepping outside our comfort zone in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So it's in all our interests to acquire new skills and step outside our comfort zone as needed and all that kind of thing. But it is equally, if not more important to do those things from the point of view of who we actually are and honoring that person and that person's talents and that person's preferences. And I'll give you an example of this just from my own life really recently. I, I literally just posted about this on social media yesterday mm. and it touched a huge nerve on social media. So I know that other people feel this too. So I took a social media fast this past summer. Yesterday was my first day back. Mm. And the reason I took that fast is because my new book, Bittersweet, came out in April and I went into this crazy uh, vortex of book promotion media, yeah. you know, and I did literally right. 135 interviews, at least, maybe more, but at least 135. Wow. Now, I was able to do all that public facing stuff because I, I guess, practiced what I just preached, which is, you know, I, I have learned over time to become comfortable with the public facing side of my job. Right. And I've learned to actually enjoy it. But I did it too much. 135 interviews was too much. Right. And I burned out. Right. And I literally, like, I suddenly hit a wall where I was like, I cannot do one more of these. And I literally just canceled everything mm. for the summer and took the summer off. Wow. And I was reflecting on that and thinking, you know, when we think about burnout, we tend to focus on workload, which can be an issue too. 
but I think for most of us, it's, it has much more to do with work fit than it does workload because I had happily worked gazillions of hours to write and research that book and get it right. And I never got burned out from that because I love doing that kind of work. Right. So the burnout came when, when the fit was wrong. And all of that is a long way of saying that, yes, we can and should step outside our comfort zone for the sake of our work and our love and so on. But you have to do that from the point of view of honoring who you truly are. And if you are going to step outside your comfort zone, you know, like to do it in moderation and and to then come back to your true self when you're done. Right. Which usually I'm actually really good at. So this was the first time this had happened to me. I totally agree that there's probably opportunity for introverts to explore the kind of world of extroversion and, you know, the social environment to grow and and develop and experience life in different ways. And similarly, there's, I would say, an opportunity for extroverts to learn to be alone and to enjoy what that brings in life. And I guess what rubs me the wrong way sometimes is that we tend to apply, you know, a judgment to one or the other, as if one is better than the other, rather than attempting to embrace the other side of the spectrum. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah. No, I absolutely agree with that. It's somehow very hard in our culture to talk about differences without assigning value judgments to them. Right. But the reality is that we really, really need both types around in the world in general, in business in particular, certainly from a personal point of view, I've had a lot of extroverts come up to me and ask me, well, how is it that you can learn to feel comfortable spending large periods of time alone or even the time that's necessary to, you know, do yoga or or practice meditation or whatever it is somebody might want to be doing? We all have our places where we need to learn to stretch But then if you look at it even from a business point of view, we know that the best performing teams are a mix of introvert and extrovert. And that's not really surprising because you need the people who are like, who have those reward networks getting really activated the way the extroverts do and they're super gung-ho and, you know, seize the day and charge ahead. And then you need the people who are going to be more reflective about a project and look at it from all its different angles you need the people who are going to be infusing that energy into a team meeting. And then you need the ones who are going to step back and ask the thoughtful questions. Like right. You need everybody there. And even from a leadership point of view, it's like you start noticing that many self-aware leaders, they know themselves well enough that they end up bringing in somebody to compliment them. You know, if they're a hard charging extrovert, they will often have a more introverted, more sort of reflective temperament person by their side to temper them right? and vice versa. And so I think that's really the way we should be looking at this as opposed to one is better than the other. Right. One thing that I was thinking about the other day is we do a lot of these personality tests at P&G, you know, Myers-Briggs and Enneagram and, and others. And I find them to be interesting, but... I think there's a best case scenario and a worst case scenario of those tests that we do. And the best case scenario is that the outcome of the test kind of helps you see yourself more objectively so that you can learn and develop and grow. And the worst case scenario is that the outcome of the test, you know, your acronym or your number, 
sort of cements who you think you are, you end up acting that out more than even before, you know, and then the people around you, the people on your team who also know your score kind of perpetuate the idea of who you are such that it makes it harder, even harder to kind of change and address those maybe blind spots that you have or venture, you know, grow into who you want to become. So what do you think about that? These kind of labels that we apply to our ourselves and our personalities? Yeah, I think I think you're getting at a, a really deep question. And it's something I, I have struggled with a lot as I do this work because I do believe there is incredible value in understanding these temperaments of ours, you know, our own temperaments and those of the people around us. And at the same time, yeah, there is for sure the danger of pinning ourselves and each other under a label instead of seeing us as these gloriously complex humans Mm. who are a mishmash of so many different forces. So the best that we can do, I think, is, is just to try to walk that line as artfully as we can. I think it would be a shame to go in one direction to the exclusion of the other. Right. One of the best frameworks that I have seen for dealing with this problem, it comes from the work of Brian Little, who's this great personality psychologist. And he talks about how even for those of us who are extreme extroverts or extreme introverts, that we all have the capacity to what he calls act out of character Mm. and that the real work that we have to do first is to identify what are our core projects in this life, by which he means, you know, the, the work and the love relationships or the causes or whatever it is to which we're most committed. And then we say, well, in the service of those core projects, we will step out of character as needed. We will step outside our comfort zone as needed to achieve that project. But we're doing it from a perspective of honoring who we really are. So when we're done stepping outside of that comfort zone, we're going to come back and, and honor ourselves. And so what does that look like? You know, for let's say an extrovert who has to spend a day with their head down, focusing on you know, churning out a memo or whatever it is, they're going to make sure to build into their schedule time when they'll get to have something they they would consider more stimulating, you know, like uh, time with their team or whatever it is. Um, And for an introvert, you would do the reverse. If you have a a day full of meetings, you would make sure to schedule in time alone or, or time to walk around the block or whatever it is. Now, that doesn't fully answer your question because I'm still answering your question in terms of, well, the introvert wants this and the extrovert wants that. Mm. And in fact... Sometimes the introvert truly wants to be like hanging out at the bar with a beer with their friends. And sometimes the extrovert truly wants mellow. Right. So that's something we have to work into. Well, and you've mentioned a couple of times that this is incredibly complex, maybe not as black and white as we'd like it to be in order to understand it. But I do find this idea of being able to act out of character to be interesting and certainly true in my experience. And the more you do it, the more comfortable you become doing more of it. And so I think what you're alluding to there is that, you know, we need to honor the pace at which we need to, you know, explore new things and and ways of operating in life, particularly if you're an introvert who wants to become more comfortable with things like that. And that's why I love your, your story of how you became a public speaker you know, because you inched your way there. And now, you know, you have a TED talk with 40 million plus views. 
Yeah, and that did take a while. And I, I mean, the, the metaphor that I use often for raising kids is that quieter children often have a longer runway before they take off and fly. So, you know, if you imagine a kid who's being introduced to, a, to swimming for the first time, very often quiet children will be more averse to the water at the beginning. And parents kind of don't know what to do. And they feel like the only option is either the child never learns to swim and that's no good. Mm. Or like, you know, the classic advice of throw them in the deep end and they'll learn. Mm. And that's kind of disastrous too for kids. And a much better approach is the little by little desensitization approach right. you know, like take them to the pool on a day when it's very quiet and empty and they can dip their toe in and you declare victory and go home and, and then come back another day. And it's like little by little by little. And, and eventually they travel down that long runway and eventually they're going to love swimming and you won't be able to, to distinguish them from the kid who jumped in from the very beginning. And that is true for us as adults as well, you know. So mm. in the public speaking example you just gave, there are some of us like me who have a real problem, mm. I used to, uh, with public speaking or a real aversion to it, a fear of the spotlight. It's very common. Mm -hmm. And the answer is not to like go and give a giant high stakes talk to the entire company. Like the, the answer is a slow desensitization, you know, maybe join Toastmasters or like look for an opportunity where you can give a talk to three colleagues about a topic you know really well or you know something like that and little by little by little you become adjusted to the thing that had once made you so uncomfortable yeah well i want to move to bittersweet but one question i guess before we go there just related to this topic since i'm sure you've spoken to a lot of people about how harmful the standardized educational systems can be to accomplish kind of what we've just been talking about because there's almost no way to accommodate the unique needs of each individual child do you see any improvement in that area or any solutions that we can be considering well, I do see improvement. There's much more awareness today than there was 10 years ago about the fact that a sizable percentage of students are natural introverts. I think we have a long way to go, but there is much more awareness of it. And I do think there's all kinds of things that we can be doing, even with standardized education, you know, from designing classrooms in such a way where there are nooks and crannies as well as big open spaces having time for individualized learning, as well as group projects, different techniques of calling on kids in class. You know, this one takes a little bit of extra time on the part of the teacher, but to notice for quiet kids, what, what are the subjects that really interest them and light them up mm. and ask them if they can contribute something to the class around those particular topics. There's all different things that we can be doing. Oh, sorry, one other big one is the one that I touched on before, which is what kind of feedback do we give to quieter children on their report cards in the parent-teacher conferences? Right. To be looking at the child's contribution to class, not from the lens of just like how many times does this child raise her hand, but rather, mm. you know, measuring engagement in much deeper and subtler ways. Yes. Well, step one is clearly making people aware that these differences exist. Absolutely. And that people develop in different ways and there isn't necessarily one path that's better than another. And so I think that's what you and others are doing that's been very helpful. Well, let's talk about your newest book called Bittersweet. Maybe we could start by having you discuss a little bit about what does it mean to kind of have a bittersweet view of the world? and the implications of that. 
Yeah. So bittersweetness, it's a view of the world where you're kind of constantly aware of the way in which light and dark and joy and sorrow always go together in this life. Everything and everyone we love best is impermanent, like not going to be here forever, which is sad. But what comes with that view of the world is it's a kind of gateway to creativity and to connection and to transcendence. If quiet, uh, my previous book was, was talking about, you know, a quiet and introverted temperament. This book is talking about a more melancholic temperament. But to understand that there's a joy in that temperament because there is a perception of the way in which we are creatures who are born to transform pain into beauty. Mm. I believe that what you could call spiritual longing is at the heart of human DNA, of our emotional DNA, whether we consider ourselves atheists or believers. And this is why, you know, you look at all our religious traditions and you have the longing for the Garden of Eden, the longing for Mecca, the longing for Zion. Um, and then you see this expressed in secular terms too, like you have Dorothy longing for somewhere over the rainbow. There is something in humans that is always longing for our deepest love, you know, you could call it for divinity, longing for that which is most good, most beautiful, most true. And that is our best selves, that sense of longing. And so one of the things that I do in the book is ask people to really tune into that side of themselves. And I, I don't mean like, you know, the longing for a shinier new car. I mean, like these deeper longings. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mentioned earlier, I, even though I'd wanted to be a writer since I was four, I had gone the practical route and become a Wall Street lawyer. And after practicing for a really long time, it was like seven years or something, there came this day when I was trying to make partner and, and a senior partner came into my office and told me that I wasn't going to be making partner. Hmm. Not sure if ever, or at least anytime soon. Anyway, at the time I received the news as if this was a big catastrophe. But I ended up taking a leave of absence like that very day. I left the firm like two hours later. Mm. And a few weeks after that, I ended a relationship that I had been in for the past seven years that had always felt wrong. And so I was suddenly, I was in my early 30s and I was suddenly like floating around out there with no career because I didn't think I was going back to law. Mm. So no career, no love. I had always wanted to have kids and I didn't know if that would happen because I was 33 and I was just like floating around. Mm. And I quickly fell into a relationship with a guy that turned into one of those obsessive relationships. Mm. He was a very lit up kind of person. He was a musician and a lyricist. And I could not free myself. I, I guess, you know, we've all been there. I couldn't free myself mm. from this obsession with him until... I was talking with a friend one day, and, and this was a friend who had patiently been listening to me as I regaled her with stories of this guy. <laughs> and one day she said to me, you know, if you're this obsessed with this guy, it's because he represents something that you're longing for. Mm. What are you longing for? And that question was like an instant epiphany for me because I suddenly realized that this guy, this lit up musician represented the world of writing and literature and art that I had wanted to be a part of since I was four years old. Like that had always been the thing that had been calling to me. Mm. And he represented all of that. And as soon as I understood that, 
the obsession with him completely melted away. Mm. I mean, I still loved him, but I, I no longer had this kind of crazy obsession. That was gone, and I started really focusing on the writing itself. Right. And I think we can all be asking ourselves those questions, you know, of what are we longing for in the deepest terms. Yeah. And what I find interesting about that story is that there was kind of this instant light bulb moment and you, you hear of that happening to some people, but for others, it can be kind of a, a longer transition or period of, of realization leading to that deep awareness. But in your case, would you describe it as something that kind of just hit you or, or would you say that something led up to that recognition beyond what your friend told you in that moment? Was anything else that you perhaps were doing or experiencing leading up to that epiphany moment? I had been aware of having those kinds of, hmm, I don't think I had ever articulated it to myself, but, mm. you know, C.S. Lewis talks about the inconsolable longing for we know not what, and that was like the animating force of his career and his writing, but he talks about how it, how this piercing, joyful longing came to him from the time he was a small child when he would be presented by kind of moments of great beauty, like one time his brother, you know, made this little shoebox full of moss and flowers and it was just like the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen and and he was pierced with that joyful longing for this sort of ultimate beauty and love mm. and I've I have felt those kinds of things all my life too and I guess I could say that at the moment that this dramatic epiphany happened to me you know I had been spending my days from the time I left the law firm until the moment of that epiphany, mm. I happened to be living in this apartment building in Manhattan, you know, giant skyscraper. But across the street from this giant skyscraper where I lived was this tiny little 19th century church and garden that was sandwiched between the skyscrapers. And I would spend hours in this church just like looking at how beautiful everything was and soaking up that environment. Mm. And I think there was something about spending so much time in that kind of an uh, emotional space where I was more receptive to those kinds of messages. Yeah. And I think it's worth saying that because I don't think that we tend to spend enough time kind of proactively chasing beauty and chasing transcendence. And I use that word chasing deliberately. I think we should be chasing it. I, like I think we're hungry for it and we should be satisfying that hunger. Mm. And instead we think of that kind of intense beauty as like a kind of a frippery, like a, you know, it's a nice thing to have, but it's just like a surface delight. And I would say it's anything but the surface delight. Mm. It's in fact the heart of everything. I'd like to maybe conclude by asking your opinion on how some of the bittersweet concepts can relate to what we do in the business world and in the corporate environment. I know you still work with a lot of companies based on what you wrote in Quiet, but also bittersweet. So I, I was just curious to hear your opinion of kind of how we can take some of these back to our everyday life in work and our personal lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, one thing is... Um you know, we talked earlier about the need to sort of proactively chase beauty. And I think that's something that we could be doing together in our teams. You could imagine teams having rituals in which they share with each other something beautiful that they've found, which is not only a spiritual exercise, but also one that 
we know increases well-being and that's been demonstrated in a number of studies you know it, it increases well-being and creativity and so on just the, the simple act of being immersed in beauty or in art we tend to think oh you have to be the creator of art that it's not okay to be a consumer of it and that's actually not true being a consumer of art is an incredibly heightening experience so that's one thing a second one would be just opening up spaces for people to share the bitter and the sweet of their lives mm. instead of an environment where people feel they have to kind of show up with their game face, you know, and their smiling face. Right. And because this is a loaded thing, I, I would recommend creating environments where people could do this anonymously, at least to start with, mm. whether that's by, you know, setting up a like a whiteboard or a white wall uh, where people would come in if, if you all are interacting in person, you know, in a place where people could just kind of like write down what's going on in their lives or in their emotional, in their emotional lives. I went to a business conference once where uh, the organizer asked people to write down on a slip of paper, a challenge that they were going through in their personal lives. And everybody did this and then they were collected. And then the organizer sat quietly on stage and just read from these slips of paper. Mm. And it was incredibly transformative because only 10 minutes earlier, we had been in a coffee break with everybody, you know, smiling at each other and shaking hands and seeming like masters of the universe. And then suddenly you read from these slips of paper and you realize, no, you know, they're all just like right. humans with all their, uh, just everything that, that they're going through. Yeah. They're just humans, beautiful humans. Right. And we need more spaces like that. Yes where we're encouraged to uh, interact with each other that way. Yeah. I'm curious, Susan, as you've done more of this work and research, have you become kind of more skilled at seeing sort of beyond the masks that we wear? You know, you <laughs> mentioned that, you know, coffee session and you know, I had kind of this visceral reaction of being in situations where I just kind of know that everyone's faking it and being very uncomfortable. <laughs> Personally, I, I hate that. And as I mentioned to you earlier in the discussion, I consciously and probably subconsciously try very hard to scratch beyond that very quickly with people. But have you found that as you've become more well-versed in these concepts and the way that human beings operate, that you can kind of see through that better? Yes, absolutely. I would also say I'm incredibly lucky because of the kinds of topics that I write and speak about. People feel really comfortable coming up to me when we don't even know each other at a conference and just mm. telling me what their realities are. Right. It's actually the most amazing privilege, really, mm. you know, that I don't really have to do small talk anymore because people just will go straight to the heart of it. Yeah. But, you know, what that really suggests is they're doing that because they know I'm like a safe person to do it with, you know, because I'm oriented that way. Right. So if we all came to understand that the others in our lives were, quote, safe people to talk that way with, everybody would want to. Right. Well, yeah, because I was going to ask you, you know, what's your advice to open the door to more of that in a work context? And I guess the answer is start with yourself. Yeah, to the extent you're comfortable with. And I do want to say, you know, I'm still an introvert and a mm -hmm. private person. So I'm not suggesting breaking boundaries that you don't want to break, right. you know, or disclose feeling obliged to disclose things you don't want to talk about. Yeah. But just to say, you know, if there are things you're comfortable talking about to find spaces to do it. Yeah, I've noticed that in some cases that with people who I who I admire and respect, like Brene Brown coming to P&G to, to educate us on things like vulnerability, there's sometimes a pressure to open up at a pace that's maybe not in line with someone's comfort level. And that can be 
perhaps toxic as well, just in a different way. Back to something we discussed earlier about children at school having unique needs and development paths. I think we need to recognize that in a work context too. Absolutely. Well, Susan, it's been a pleasure talking with you and welcoming you back to the P&G family. Do you work with corporate clients much still, or how do you generally engage with organizations like P&G? Yeah, I do still work with corporate clients quite a bit, and I love to come in and give talks and lead Q&A discussions and so on. So if that's something that's of interest, that's wonderful. And separately from that, if people want to engage with me, I have a website, which is susancain.net. I have some courses there that people can take, both on introversion at work and on bittersweetness. And the courses are super cool. There's just like little messages from me that you get every morning on your phone, mm. um, audio messages and text messages. Oh, cool. And it just lasts for a few minutes every morning. So it's a quick little hit. Great. And then I'm also on social media. So all the different LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. So lots of different ways to stay connected. Yeah, I need to go check out what art you posted today. I haven't looked at that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Today I posted a poem, actually. Ah, okay. And and as I said, I took a social media fast this past summer. So I just got back yesterday. Oh, okay. So, okay. Yeah. Well, I'll take a look and encourage others to do so as well. Yeah. Susan, thank you for your time and sharing your stories and your insights and for joining the More Than So podcast. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, Dorian. I think it's awesome that you do this <laughs> and uh, you're really good at it. Ah, so, I have thank a lot you. of fun. Thank you. Susan. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.